Revelation chapter 4. If you're here with me, you can grab your Bible, your device, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. We are jumping back into our series that we've called Apocalypse Now. We are walking through the book of Revelation a little bit at a time, and we have taken a break for the last couple of weeks. We were in Easter, of course, and Mission Sunday before that, and so we're going to jump back into it, and we're going to pick up speeds as we get going now a little bit. The first few chapters of Revelation were broken up into kind of small sections that were just kind of good logical places to focus on for a sermon, but as we continue through the book, we're going to pick up speed. We're going to cover Some Sundays we'll do a whole chapter. Some Sundays we'll even do a couple of chapters because uh, there are a couple of chapters that just kind of talk about the same thing. So we might not nail every single little verse along the way, uh, but we're going to continue to plug our way through this. So it is one of the burning questions for just about everybody on earth, uh, which is what happens when we die? Is there a heaven? What is heaven like? And even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have our, fo- our faith and our hope grounded in heaven, we still have that question, well, what is heaven like? What it's gonna, what's it going to be like? My kids ask me this question. What's it like? And when you try to explain eternity to a child, that's a tough conversation because it's a hard thing to get your head around. And so, uh, you know, heaven in some ways, when you explain it like, well, we're going to be with the Lord and we're going to be worshiping him uh, for all eternity. So like, yeah, the longest time you can possibly imagine times infinity, uh, that's what we're going to be doing. And my son has said to me, that sounds boring. Uh, because it's hard to imagine. It's just hard to get your head around. And, and even the best things we do in this life have a shelf life to them, and so it's hard to imagine something good that goes on forever and ever and ever. Uh, it's hard to imagine something beyond time, right? Time is something that exists here on earth. It doesn't exist in the same way in heaven. And so that great burning question of what is heaven like, and Scripture actually gives us precious few explanations of it. It talks about heaven a lot. It points to heaven a lot. It talks about the kingdom of heaven a lot. But in terms of what's it actually like there, there's really only a few spots that dig into it. And one of those spots is where we are going to go today. And so as we look at our text, we're in Revelation chapter 4. And this is just one of those clear pictures of heaven that we get in Scripture. So let's read this together. We're starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So chapter 5 we'll get into next week, and the story will carry on. Um, But we get to see the throne room of heaven in this passage. We get this glimpse of God on his throne. And it's one of those clear pictures that really only shows up a couple of other times in the Old Testament. And as with all things Revelation, there is tremendous debate about this chapter, as there is with every other chapter. Anytime I say there's debate in Revelation, you should all just say, well, obviously it's Revelation. There's just lots of different opinions, lots of different scholars scholarly perspectives, but we get this picture of heaven with crowns and thrones and creatures and eyeballs and wings and all of these things. And so is this literally what heaven is like? How literally do we take the book of Revelation? It's up for debate, but we get this picture certainly of what is going on in heaven, and that is ceaseless worship. Endless praise is coming to the one who sits on the throne. And so this isn't even actually Uh, the heaven that we're going to experience for eternity. Because by the end of the book, the Bible says there's a new heaven coming and a new earth coming. So we don't need to tie in necessarily too much that this is exactly what it's going to be like as much as understand what this is pointing to and what it's telling us about who God is and what uh, certainly a picture of eternity is going to be like as we walk with him. So... Verse 1, after this I looked. So remember John has seen Jesus. He has gotten these letters, these specific shout-outs that are going out to the seven churches. He's written all of these down. So that part is now done. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's Jesus' voice, said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Like, what an invitation, right? Jesus says, come on up. You get a glimpse of what's coming next. I'm going to show you what's about to happen. And it just grounds us, reminds us of the fact that Jesus knows everything. That God knows what's coming. He knows what's up. And he's giving John graciously a look at just a glimpse of what is coming there. Also interesting here, I looked and there's a door standing open in heaven. And I love that part because certainly uh, culturally when it comes to heaven, we have these pictures culturally of, you know, clouds and angels and, you know, maybe the pearly gates that are there, right? And culturally this picture of St. Peter who sits in front of the pearly gates and you sort of have to, he's like the maitre d' of heaven. You have to check in and he decides whether your name's there. And none of that is anything we find in scripture. But we see here even the idea of like a closed gate isn't there for those who know Jesus. For those who know Jesus, the door to heaven is open already. We don't have to get there and make our way through another door. Like the door is open. The way has been opened to us because of what Jesus has done. So there is open access there. The invitation is there. It reminds us a little bit of Hebrews 4.16, which says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Some versions say, let us boldly approach the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So when John is invited up into heaven, he's able to come because the door is open. Jesus has opened that door. And so we too are able to boldly come before the throne of grace. We're able to approach God's throne with confidence because Jesus has invited us there. And so this invitation comes, the door is open. Come on up, John. You get to see what's coming next. 
And as Jesus says what's coming next, again, it reminds us that Jesus is not just all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows what was because he was there. He knows what is because he's here. He knows what's to come because he's there too somehow. Somehow in the glorious power of who our God is, he is in past, present, future, in time and beyond times, transcendentally somehow. At the same time, it gets trippy and metaphysical if you start trying to wrap your head around it. But in the glorious wonder of who our God is, he is both all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. He is everywhere at once. He knows everything, and he has all the power. Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 45, 21. God is speaking through Isaiah and says, Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. And so we are reminded in in this picture of heaven that as we get going through this passage that there is a God sitting on the throne. There is a God who is sitting on the throne and he knows what is to come and he is powerful over everything that is happening. And so they are at a time in the book of Revelation where the persecution is intense. They are living under tyranny. The government is coming after them. The Jewish people are coming after them. People in town are just coming after them. They're living under this oppression and this persecution. And in the middle of this oppression and persecution, John gets this image where he gets reminded that there is a God in heaven who sits on the throne. There is a God who is in charge, and he knows everything. He is aware of what's happening. He is over everything that's happening. And that will be encouraging to us no matter what we are going through, that God isn't surprised by anything, that he is not confused by anything, he is not worried about anything, that he is God on the throne over everything. There is a God in heaven who sits on the throne, and we need to be reminded of that regularly because we forget And even though intellectually we might not forget, the way we live our lives, the way we handle our problems says to me that we do just seem to forget this. We need to be reminded that there is a God in heaven and he is sitting on the throne in control. He is in control of all things. It's been a bummer of a week in Ontario, right? It was not great news as we continue to to work our way through this pandemic. And there's a lot of different ways that we can choose to engage in this and navigate this. And obviously all of us are frustrated in different ways and, and it's understandable. The annoyance and the frustration is understandable. But I would remind all of us, there is a God in heaven who's sitting on the throne. There is a God in heaven who's sitting on the throne. And we need to be reminded of that regularly because we do forget. And anytime I start grumbling, oh, the government this, the government this. No, the government is not in heaven sitting on the throne. The Lord is in heaven and he is sitting on the throne. Anytime if we're overwhelmed about the virus itself or if we're saying my finances, I'm so worried about my finances, we need to be reminded that there is a God in heaven and he is sitting on the throne. That is the ultimate reality, whatever we're facing here on earth. And that doesn't mean we have to like our circumstances, but it means that there is a God who is above our circumstances, who is sitting on the throne. It is not a virus, and it is not a government, and it is not a circumstance. God is in heaven, and he is sitting on the throne. And we have to constantly come back to that, constantly refresh ourselves in that. Because if we believe that, if we believe that there's a God in heaven, and we believe that he is the one sitting on the throne, then this might not be what we want to hear right now, but we would have to acknowledge theologically that the fact that we are in a third lockdown is something that he has allowed. It's something that he has allowed to happen. If he didn't want it to be happening, it would not be happening. 
He could make the virus go away in an instant. He could change the heart of the leadership in an instant. And, and a lot of the grumbling I'm hearing about the government, I understand that it seems like they are the source of the, the frustration and the struggle in our lives right now, but there's a God in heaven above them. And scripture says that God holds the heart of the king in his hands and he directs it wherever he wants. And so if God wanted this done tomorrow, it would be done tomorrow because he's the one ultimately who's in control. And every time I complain about the government as if they are the ones who are making life hard, I'm dishonoring the one who is in heaven, who is ultimately in control of all of it. And I'm not suggesting that everything that's happening is good necessarily, and I don't know if every choice is the right choice that they're making, but I can't control that either. And what I can choose to do is be grateful in all circumstances. So you know what? I wish we were at 30% instead of 15%, but the last lockdown we were at 10 people, so I'm glad 15% of you are here. It's better than 10 people, and I'll be grateful for that. It's not my favorite. It's not the fullness of what I want, but I'll be grateful for it because Scripture commands me to be grateful in all circumstances, and Scripture tells me over and over again that the people of God are not grumblers. We're not. And the reason we don't grumble is because there is a God in heaven who is sitting on the throne, and he is the one who is in control. And we acknowledge that he is the only one who is in control. And so we have to keep coming back to that because there are always going to be, far beyond COVID, there are always going to be things that pull us into our frustration, that pull us into ourselves, that pull us into taking our eyes off of him. And so we constantly come back to this place. There is a God in heaven who is seated on the throne. And sometimes in this season, as people have been frustrated, which I fully understand, as people vent and complain, I am asking people, what does your prayer life look like? And inevitably, usually the answer is not so great. It's hard when you're frustrated. It's hard when you're feeling annoyed. And I get it. I couldn't relate more. And yet God says in his word, we, most of us would be familiar with 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will turn towards them and I will heal their land. The line before that is, if there is a plague among the people, then if my people will pray. Like that's the line that comes right before. That's verse 13. We don't ever talk about that one, but that's the line that leads into it. When there's a plague in the land, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will turn to them and I will heal their land. It's up to his people to be praying right now. It's up to his people to be, to be humbling ourselves right now. And I go, man, if we took all of that energy, all of that frustrated anger energy, and again, I'm, I'm sharing that with you. I get it. All of the frustration of the season that we're in and that things move backwards this week and that wasn't what we wanted, we want to take all of that frustrated energy and not let it turn us into bitter people, but let it fuel us into people of the kingdom more and more. If we spend as much time praying for the government as we spend complaining about the government, maybe something would change. If we spend as much time on our face crying out to God as we spent scrolling through our news feeds and our social media, maybe something would change. When Daniel was in distressing circumstances in Daniel chapter 10, he fasts and prays. He doesn't eat for 21 days. He fasts and he prays and he cries out to God until the answer comes. He doesn't quit, he doesn't stop, he doesn't slow down. He fasts and he prays until things change. Are we doing that? Are we fasting? Are we praying? 
Are we turning things off? Are we getting on our face? Are we asking God for mercy? Are we saying, get this virus out of our land and get our government where you want them to be? If they're not where you want them to be, if they are where you want them to be, Lord, then help us to walk in where you want us to be because ultimately you are in heaven and you're seated on the throne. Are we a praying people? Prayerless people are not allowed to complain about their circumstances. It's ridiculous. Are we a praying people? Are we fasting? Are we sacrificing? Are we pressing in? Because that's what he has given us in his word. That's how things change. That's how heaven responds. When we, his people, humble ourselves and pray and turn from our sin and press into him, that's how things change. We fix our eyes on the one who is seated on the throne. Verse two of our text. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And there's this interesting thing that happens in scripture where we don't really get descriptions of what God looks like. Uh, Even Jesus, when he walks the earth, there's nowhere in the gospels that says, oh, Jesus was medium height and he had dark hair and he had brown skin. Like, it's just not there. You don't get these physical descriptors there. And you don't really get specific physical descriptors of God in heaven either. It just doesn't happen a whole lot. So even the language that is used here, uh, it's pretty vague, right? So someone sitting there, kind of has this jewelry look, this kind of glowing emerald-like look about them, like ruby. And, and so it's, it's very uh, descriptive in some ways. Like you get this picture of, oh, so whoever's on the throne obviously must be shiny and beautiful and brilliant to behold. But it's not like, you know, God's hair looks like this or his eyes look like that. Like it's just, it's not specific at all. And that is consistent with the rest of scripture. We don't really get crystal clear definitions. Earlier in Revelation, we did get a description of Jesus uh, with white hair and we got to see a little bit of that there. But here as he beholds God the Father on the throne, uh, there's just a vagueness to it. There's kind of metaphor that speaks to his beauty, to his brilliance, to his glory. But there's not like, yeah, how tall is he and like what's his bone structure like, you know, and and things like that. Like none of that is there. And there's this constant theme in scripture. God is always very concerned in scripture about idolatry, about idol worship. That, uh, first of all, not that we would worship other gods. That's the primary, that we wouldn't seek after other gods and bow down to them. But there's more to it than just that. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 Verse 4 and 5, God says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. In heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. And so, yes, that would mean we don't want to bow down to Baal, right, who's a statue, and we won't want to bow down to a Buddha statue or Ganesh, the Hindu elephant god. We maybe have seen those idols before. It's that. But it's also, no, you're not to make an image in the form of anything, including the Lord. You're not to make an image of anything, including the one who sits on the throne. And there is something about idols, about things that are made of stone and wood that God in his word talks about as, no, that's, that's the creation. That's part of the creation. You don't bow down to part of the creation because our God is the creator. He's above the creation. We don't lower the creator to become a part of the creation and then bow down to it. And so I think one of the reasons why God doesn't describe himself is that if he did, someone would make an idol. Like someone would just say, all 
all right, here's who God is. And there would be something about that, about that that would draw us to a specific, you know, statue or painting or whatever. And God makes so clear in his word, no, he is so far beyond the creation. He's so far above the creation. We don't take him and limit him uh, to something that we're going to worship in any way. And so there is a, a vagueness to God's description on the throne. We get to see, okay, so he's brilliant. He's beautiful. Obviously, he's glorious. There's this rainbow there. And the rainbow shows up in scripture first in Genesis 9, the Noah story, right? And if you've been around Sunday school, you remember the story of Noah being saved with his family as God judges the evil of the world. And then God setting his rainbow in the clouds and saying, you know what? I will never destroy the world by water again, and I'll set my rainbow in the clouds. And every time I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant to not do that. And so if you're like me, you can't see a rainbow in the sky without thinking of God, right? It worked. It was a great, <laughs> he tells us that. I'm going to put it there. It'll be a reminder. And every time I see that rainbow, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of our God, not just in not destroying the world, but his faithfulness everywhere. He is always faithful. His name is faithful. He can't not be faithful. And so we see that rainbow, and we are reminded of that, and that rainbow is there in the throne room surrounding the throne. God's faithfulness is evident, even in his presence. It is there to point us to his faithfulness. And so there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of glory. There's a lot of, uh, you know, just dazzling brilliance in the throne room as John beholds the throne. Uh, there's going to be times as we go through the book of Revelation, John just gets so overwhelmed by it. He's just overwhelmed by the glory that he is experiencing. So that's the throne. We don't hear a lot about what God is like. We actually hear more description about the ones who are around the throne. And so moving on to the next slide, which my thing is going crazy. All right, there we go. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And so, again, as with all things, uh, who are these elders? We don't know. We don't know for sure. If anyone tells you that they know for sure, they're lying. We don't know for sure. So call them a liar and tell, just call them out on it. Don't let them get away with that. Who are these elders? There's 24 thrones. There are 24 elders. They're wearing crowns. They're wearing white. Who are they? Here are some of the theories. First of all is that they are angels of some kind. That would be the first theory. They are some sort of angelic being. They are there. They are helping perhaps rule over creation with the Lord, or they are there to participate in the worship of God or all of the above. So that would be uh, one of the main views is that they are just some sort of special angelic being. Uh, another view is, is that these are humans who have passed away and are now in the presence of the Lord, and they have achieved just high places of honor in heaven. So Jesus talks about, hey, the, the way to get into heaven is the same for everybody. Everybody uh, who, who receives the same gift of salvation that comes through Jesus, through the cross, through the resurrection, that is equal for everybody. And that you don't bring anything to the table. That comes to you by grace. It comes to you as a gift. That becomes to you freely. Um, the Bible also says that, yeah, but your works will determine your place in heaven afterwards. Jesus says there's reward in heaven. There's great reward and there's small reward. He says there's high places in heaven, there's low places in heaven. And Jesus would talk to his disciples about there's just, there are special seats there. The, the mother of Zebedee would come to Jesus and say, hey, I want my sons to sit in a couple of those special seats when they come into the kingdom of heaven with you in eternity. And so there are apparently, there are spots that are close to Jesus, that are seats of honor in heaven. And so one theory is that there's angels there. Another theory is, is that these are humans 
humans who have achieved these high seats, that they have lived their lives in such a way that their reward is they get to sit on these seats close to heaven. Uh, another picture kind of tying into that, and this, this one I kind of like, although there's no proof for it, uh, for any of these to say that, um, is that they represent the 12 patriarchs of Israel and they represent the 12 apostles of the church, the, the fullness of God's people. So the Bible likes the number seven. We've talked about that a lot. The Bible likes the number 12 as well. 12 is the number of government in the Bible. God's government is often symbolized by the number 12. So in the Old Testament, that is represented in Israel by 12 tribes. There are 12 patriarchs, Simeon and Joseph and Reuben and Levi and Judah and their brothers. And then in the New Testament, there are 12 apostles and the apostles lay the foundation of the church. So the 12 patriarchs are part of the foundation of God's people of Israel and the 12 apostles are part of the foundation of God's people, the church. And it is possible that these 12 on each side represent the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. I like that just because it's nice and neat. There's nothing in the text that suggests that it's that. But if you had to choose one, you go like, well, that just kind of makes sense. And, and the Bible likes 12. And so that's one way to look at it. I don't care where you land on any of those. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. And we've said as we've gone through this so far, when Revelation really wants us to understand what something means, John just tells us specifically, this is what this means. And so if John doesn't do that, then we don't need to know what it means. It's not crucial to us, obviously. So whatever you land on that is fine. Uh, one thing, obviously, we know for sure is that they're there. They have these crowns, which typically represents authority in some way. And so they are, are either ruling with Christ or they are, uh, they are overseers of things in heaven, maybe, or on earth. We don't really know. But there's some level of authority given to them. Um, one of the reasons I think it's, it's maybe a bit more likely that these are humans, whatever that looks like, is just that any other time in Revelation when we see humans in white, it's humans who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. We've talked about that already in previous weeks. And so they are there, and they are very much involved in the worship, as we uh, will see in just a moment. So that's the elders. And then there's these creepy creatures as well, verse 6 through 8. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. So just eyeballs everywhere, which is just weird to think about. But there is uh, some consistency in this. This sounds an awful lot. Uh, like a couple of Old Testament passages. And so we have said already, as we go through Revelation, almost everything in Revelation ties into the Old Testament in some way. And so by looking at those Old Testament passages, that can help us understand why is John, uh, by the Spirit, pulling this together for us as well. So it sounds an awful lot like Ezekiel chapter 1. That's one of the passages. Ezekiel chapter 1 is one of those other glimpses of heaven that we get in the Bible. And so Ezekiel is a prophet he's out by the river one day and then just he, his eyes are open to the spiritual realm it's just wide open he sees the throne of God he also sees four creatures he describes them a little bit differently in Ezekiel's passage he sees them as uh, four creatures that are all the same but they have four different faces uh, Revelation sees it as four different creatures Ezekiel has them there but it's the same animals there's a man there's a lion there's an ox there's an eagle and so Ezekiel has this picture of heaven he too is just overwhelmed by the glory of what he is seeing. And so Ezekiel, long before John, uh, got to see these four living creatures as, as well in his own picture of heaven. Um, and then there's another passage in Isaiah, which we'll get to in a second, because the second part of verse 8 says that day and night, these four creatures never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty 
who was and is and is to come. And so Jesus has already introduced himself in Revelation in that way. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, who was and who is and who is to come. Jesus has always been, he is right now, and he will always be. And so day and night, this, this chant or this song or this phrase is repeated over and over. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. And when we talk about holy in the Bible, you've heard me say before, at its heart, the word just really means different. It means set apart. It means different from the rest, different from the normal, different from the average, different from what you would expect. It means other. It just means there's, there's normal stuff, and then there's something that's holy. It's nothing like the normal stuff. It is so different. It is so separate. It is so sacred. It is so above. And so when we talk about the holiness of God, it is to say he is so different than us. He is so different than anything we see. He is so far above anything we see. He is so unlike this fallen, broken creation. He is so unlike this weak and bruised flesh. He is so different than us. And that's really, really, really good news. He is so holy. He is so other. He is so different. He is so set apart. He is so pure. He is so beyond. He is so holy. And so John sees these creatures which sound an awful lot like Ezekiel's creatures. And as John sees these creatures, they are just nonstop, on a loop, over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We've actually heard this song before, and we've heard it in Isaiah's uh, glimpse of heaven that he had. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Sounds familiar. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And so John has also seen the throne of God. There's thunder and there's lightning, like there's an intensity to the glory of God. There's a, a fear of the Lord that comes with this. So Isaiah is, is seeing this as well. And so we get John's picture of heaven in Revelation. We've had Ezekiel's picture of heaven in Ezekiel chapter 1. We get Isaiah's picture of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. And they're all seeing these creatures there, which Isaiah gives a name to, which is the seraphim. And so the seraphim, uh, in classic church understanding, are these angels, these powerful angels that are in the throne room of God, and they lead heaven in the worship of God. They are there to worship God. That's what they do day and night, as John says. And so their song over and over is holy, holy, holy. We have a hymn that we sing, right, called holy, holy, holy. And a lot of the language of that hymn comes from this passage in Revelation 4, that it speaks to the, the creatures and the glassy sea and, and casting down our crowns and all of this comes from that picture that we get in scripture. Holy, holy, holy. Here's something interesting. Who wants to learn some Hebrew right now? I'm not going to teach you the Hebrew. We're going to talk about language rules. Woohoo! Exciting. So in English, we have what are called comparative and superlative adjectives. And what that means is we have words that help us compare things to one another and elevate certain things above one another. And so the example, the, my seminary prof, the way he taught it to me was this. In English, we would say, ice cream is good. Ice cream with hot fudge is better. Ice cream with hot fudge and a bunch of other stuff on top is best. 
Good, better, best. We have these words that help us compare things to one another, elevate certain things above one another. And so we use them all the time. We help, we help you know, relate to things and explain things. If we say, hey, I, I like this restaurant better, but I like that one the best, that's me saying to you, I want to go to that one, right? I want to go to the better one or the best one. And so we have these words that help us understand that good, better, best. Hebrew doesn't have that in the same way. They just don't have words that they use that way. It just, they don't have them. And so in Hebrew, what you do to get the same idea across is you repeat the word. And the more you repeat the word, the more you are elevating that word. And so, whereas in English, we would say uh, ice cream is good, ice cream with hot fudge is better, ice cream with a whole bunch of toppings on top is best. In Hebrew, you would say ice cream is good, Ice cream with hot fudge is good, good. Ice cream with hot fudge and a whole bunch of stuff on top is good, good, good. And the more you repeat the word, the more you elevate that word. And so in the Hebrew, in the Isaiah, when they're saying holy, 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 he's not just repeating himself, and he's not just saying, hey, I want this word to stick. It's not just like when we repeat a song sometimes, it's like, oh, the words need to sink in, so we're going to repeat this so that it really sinks in. No, when they say holy, 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 That's the Hebrew way of saying the most holy, the most holy. That's the Hebrew way of saying good, better, best. That's the Hebrew way of saying the holiest. The Lord Almighty is the holiest. The Lord Almighty is so far beyond even just holy. He's the holiest of holiest of holies. The Lord God is so holy. And that repetition will never mean the same to you after this. Every time you sing holy, 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 you're going to remember this because I remember when I first learned it. It's not just a repetition. It's saying the holiest, the most holy, the holiest that it can possibly be. Holy, holy, holy. There is no one as holy as the Lord Almighty. His holiness is so far beyond anything we see in this life. Back to our text today, verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks... To him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. As Charlie shared those verses with us this morning. Thanks, Charlie. And so the the 24 elders, whoever they are, they are all into this worship service, this eternal worship service that is going on. We have the seraphim, the four living creatures, and they are leading this. But as they are leading the worship, as they are setting the tone, these elders are all in. And they are also jumping in. And they also have this song to sing or this thing to say. And it begins with the words that are the most important words when it comes to our worship. You are worthy. You are worthy. Why do we worship him? Because he's worthy. We worship him because he's worthy. Why do we come on a Sunday? Why do we join our voices together? Why do we take the time to do that? Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. That's the reason. That's the only reason you need is because he's worthy. And so specifically, they say you're worthy because you've created all things, right? We only exist because of you. And that's enough for us to sing this song to you forever and ever. You are worthy of our worship. And far beyond just creating us, of course, he has sustained us, right? And he has saved us and he has died for us and he has risen for us and he continues to sustain us. He's poured his spirit into us and he gives us life every day and he gives us encouragement. He gives us the strength to keep going. He has done so much. 
And so their song begins, you are worthy. Why do we worship him? Because he's worthy. That's the only reason. And you've heard me say before, that worthiness doesn't ever change. My mood may change all the time, but his worthiness doesn't change. So if my mood isn't into worship today, guess what needs to change? Because he's worthy no matter what. He is worthy all the time. He's worthy when we're on the mountaintops and he is worthy when we're in the valleys. He's worthy when we can gather as 100% and he's worthy when we can gather at 15% and he's worthy when we can gather as 10 people. And he's worthy when we can't allow, we're not allowed to leave the house. He's worthy if the government outlaws Christianity tomorrow. He is always worthy of our worship. He is always worthy of our worship. Worthy, worthy, worthy of our worship. He is worthy. And so they jump into this song with them. And I just so love, I could talk about this all day, where they take off their crowns. And they lay their crowns before the throne. They've been given these crowns by the Lord, obviously. And again, we don't know what the crowns signify. Again, are they, are they angels who are helping run creation with the Lord? Are they humans who have achieved these great crowns by living the righteous life of, of obedience and sacrifice that the Lord has wanted? And that's how they got them. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. As soon as the worship songs start, the crowns come off their heads and are presented to the Lord as part of their worship. They fall on their faces and they take off these things that represent blessing, that represent reward, that represent authority, and they lay them down. It all goes down on the ground before the Lord who is worthy of worship. And whatever we have, whatever we have been given, whatever we have been entrusted with, with the time we've been entrusted, with the bodies we've been entrusted, with the giftings we've been entrusted, with the money that we've been entrusted with, with everything that God has given us, this is the posture of worship. We take it all and we lay it down before his throne. It's not there ultimately for us. It's there ultimately to glorify him. And the minute the worship starts and they start acknowledging who God is, these elders are just like, okay, everything we have on the ground, it's all getting laid down as an act of worship before him. There's nothing in them that are going like, well, I earned my crown and I'm going to keep it right here. Thank you very much. Like the minute the worship starts, it's everything gets laid down for him. And that is one of the most challenging things in our humanness to do is to understand that everything you have is not yours at all, actually. It's, I mean, even the breath in your body, right? Like, you're, you're not here right now if it's not for him and his grace. Everything we've been given ultimately belongs to him. And part of living a life of worship is singing our songs, and that's important, and the Bible talks a lot about singing. And you've heard me say before, some people don't like singing. I'm sorry about your life, but you're going to be singing for all eternity, so get used to it. Singing is part of what we do. The Bible says God himself is musical. We are made in the image of God. We are musical. And part of what we do is we offer him our song. And we usually call that worship. Our worship time is that. But worship is so much more than just our song. That's part of it. But worship is so much more. Romans talks about, Romans 13, that we live our lives as a living sacrifice. Our lives are our worship. Our obedience is our worship. Our devotion to others is our worship. The way we love others, the way we follow after the way of Christ, that is our worship. The way we take what he's given us and give it to others, that is our worship. The way that we lay our lives down before him and say, Jesus, you are Lord and we are not. Our lives are given in service of you. That is our worship. That's all our worship. And there's something about that scene of they they take off their crowns, they fall down on their face, they put their crown down before the throne. You go, that's the fullness of worship, right? Body, soul, giftings, authority, everything, it's all yours. I give it all to you. 
I honor that even though I may have a crown, you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You are above every crown. Even though I have been given the seat of honor in heaven, I acknowledge that you are in a greater seat of honor in heaven, and I lay myself down to glorify you in that. And so you'll notice in the throne room of heaven, no one's saying, well, what about me? And what about what I get? And what about my rights? And what's in this for me? And like, no one's talking that way, face to face with the beautiful, brilliant glory of God. It's entirely about him. And it's entirely about how can we glorify you? How can we lift you up? How can we show you our appreciation for you? You are worthy of our worship. So we don't worship because we feel like it. We don't worship because we are in the mood that day. We don't worship because we like this song or don't like this song or that song or the other song. We don't worship because we're, we're grateful, even though we should be grateful and that can motivate our worship. We worship for one reason. There's one reason we worship. We worship because he is worthy to be worshiped. We worship him because he is worthy and he is always deserving of all of our worship, our songs or otherwise. So what is heaven like? We get a picture of that today. Come on up, worship team. We're going to wrap up with some worship as we get ready to go today. Some musical worship today. What is heaven like? We get a glimpse of it. And again, there will be a new heaven one day and a new earth. So I don't know if that's exactly what it will look like for us necessarily. But the most important thing we see in every glimpse of heaven that we get, including the new heavens and the new earth that are coming at the end of Revelation, whatever picture of heaven we're seeing, God is there in the middle of it. God is there. He's in the middle of it. And he is right there, uh, the center of attention. And so whatever your view of heaven is, whether it's clouds and, and angels and stairway to heaven like the theologians taught us in the rock world, it's not so much about the details that we need to worry about. It's not so much about what exactly will this color be or, or whatever. That, that, we'll see that when we get there, and that will be fine. But... The most important thing we understand about heaven is that God is there and he's on the throne. He's there in the middle of it. And in any picture of heaven that we get, there's just an awful lot of worship going on. There's an awful lot of acknowledgement. And part of why we have to keep coming back to this again and again, that God is in heaven and he is on the throne, is because it just reminds us that he is God and we are not. Right? He's God. We're not. And I've talked before in the last year, one of the things COVID has taught us is that we're not in control of an awful lot of our lives. We thought we were in control of a lot more, I think. And it turns out we're not. It's always been that way. It's just been a lot clearer now. And it turns out we really don't like losing that control. We really hate that. But there is a place of peace available in knowing that there is a God in heaven who is on the throne and he is the one who is in control. It means I don't have to be in control of everything. I don't have to be on top of everything. It means that I don't have to carry that weight that I was actually never meant to carry because it means God is the one who is carrying that because he's God and I'm not. And so part of our worship always is lowering ourselves. It's humbling ourselves, right? The elders get on their faces. They take off their crowns. It's lowering ourselves in the acknowledgement that he is greater. And that's just the reality, whether I'm feeling it today or not. That's just the way that that is. And this is where worship becomes so crucial is we need to remind ourselves of who he is and remind ourselves of who we are. And that even though he is so holy, 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 even though he is so much greater, even though he is so far beyond us and so more, much more sacred and divine and powerful and beautiful and glorious, it's that he loves us anyway and he opens the door and welcomes us in. He is worthy of our worship. And so as we've set this year up, we've talked about this being a year of thriving 
and how do we thrive, right? Even in a bad week, right? It was a bummer of a week. The news wasn't great. It was discouraging and disappointing. How do we thrive in the middle of that discouragement? How do we thrive in the middle of that disappointment so that we don't become bitter, angry, cynical people? Because the people of God are not to be that. So how do we thrive in the midst of a week like we've just had? Well, it starts again, and I've said it 47 times today, with us centering ourselves on the reality that Jesus is on the throne. He is in heaven and he's on the throne. He is ultimately Lord. He is ultimately the one in control. He's in control of everything that happened this past week. He is ultimately in control. And I don't know why it's all happening. I don't understand the fullness of it. It might take us a while to sort through all of that. But I know he's on the throne and I know he's in control. And there is peace that comes when we know that. It doesn't mean we have to like everything that's happening, but we know he is bigger than all of it. And we will thrive as we ground ourselves in that truth, in that reality. We'll also thrive in this year of thriving as we worship with our song, with our lives, with our obedience, with our other-centeredness as we walk in the way of Jesus. That humble, foot-washing, other-centered, self-sacrificial way of Christ. We thrive there because Jesus thrived there as he lived his life and as we walk in his footsteps, as we worship him with everything. There is so much comfort that comes when we truly remember that he's God and we're not. There is so much comfort that comes there. It goes against everything in our nature. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, the problem wasn't just that they crossed a line. The problem was that they were saying, we want to be our own God, right? We don't need a God. We can be our own God. We can do this ourselves. We continue that error all the time in lots of different ways. We carry burdens we were never meant to carry. We take on weight we were never meant to bear. And there is so much freedom that comes in laying down and casting your crown before the Lord and saying, hey, you're going to be the one to be God here in this relationship. I'll be the servant, but you are God. And I will remind myself of that every single day. So we want to do that before we go today. And, and we pick this song. I said to Marissa, there's a song we sing called Revelation Song, right out of Revelation 4. I said, if there was ever a Sunday to sing that song, this is the Sunday. We're going to sing it coming out of the Word. So I'll ask you to stand to your feet with me today. He's worthy of this worship today. So close your eyes, forget about everything else, and give him the worship that he deserves this morning because he's worthy of it.